This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor, expertly Paul. Paul, how are you doing today? I am doing very well. Um, now I'm feeling <laughs> like I better live up to that that title, but uh, yeah, no, I'm doing good. It's, uh, you know, we've talked about with the summer, it's kind of this weird whirlwind of time. It's, it's very nice, uh, but also kind of, I don't know, I feel a little unmoored. The, the boys are all off at camps and you know, busy and we're getting Daniel, our oldest one, ready for college. So it's, it's both a very relaxing time, but also like you can just feel everything in the building. It's strange. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, it's been going well. My wife and I got to go see actually a couple weeks ago. I didn't mention it on here, but we went and saw Shakespeare. Oh, Um, cool. Up in Boulder, they have an outdoor theater. And so we saw Much Ado About Nothing. And it was, it was wonderful. They do a really great <laughs> job up there and we'd been meaning to go for a long time. So one of the benefits of having those older kids is, you know, get to sneak away and do some fun things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that was really fun. Yeah. That How's your awesome. summer been going? I know you guys had a, a vacation recently and. Yeah, it's been, it's been good. It's been getting hotter, um, mm-hmm. but it kind of is a treat and something some listeners will, will, will maybe like to hear. I was able to meet with uh, Anthony Garrett again. Um, you know, we don't live too far away from each other. And the reason that we, we got together this time was up in Salt Lake uh, at the King's English was because Dorian Stuber was in town yeah. of uh, One Bright Book fame and, you know, Twitter uh, notoriety. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, that looked like so much fun. You guys sent me a Marco Polo message and... I was very happy for all of you. I was tempted. I was very tempted. I was even looking at airline prices <laughs> just to see if I could swing it. I probably could have, but it might have been pushing it a little bit. So I just let you guys have your moment and we'll make it happen again <laughs> one of these days. We certainly will. It, it was a lot of fun. And just one of those things, you know, you, again, we have a pretty uh, special uh, thing going with uh, these book groups that are on Instagram and Twitter and I guess now threads, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that it's fun to get together with people who you've been friends with for years and realize you're actually friends with them. You know, they are good people and you are excited to see them. They're excited to see you. You have a lot of things to talk about. There's there, it, it, you know, I, I know it isn't always like that. I'm not saying remote friendships, the way to go, everybody. <laughs> uh, but um, it, it is, it's awesome. It was a lot of fun. We, we all, uh, you know, just browsed for some time at the, the King's English. And then we went, um, and had lunch across the street at Caputo's and just sat in their little corner table for, I don't even know how long, <laughs> a few awesome. hours, but <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's so much fun. Nice. And I, I know you wiped out their selection of bear, the book bear, Dorian's favorite book. We of didn't all time. actually. We did not wipe out their selection. Oh, wow. That's one of the things that was so, um, I think, surprising to Dorian is that they had a copy. Not only that, but they had enough copies for Anthony and I to both pick one up and there to be more. So, uh, <laughs> Wow. That is very impressive. That's a good selection. Yeah. They knew Dorian was coming. They wanted to be well prepared, build up their reputation. Yeah. You know. They had his, the... his taste precedes him, you know. so That's right. <laughs> they had the bear rug rolled out for him instead of the red carpet. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that would it, it. It was nice though. It was it was a good a good trip. Nice, uh, but uh, but yeah, summer's been going good. Just getting hotter. 
you know um but it's that's that's okay that's okay i know i can do it i know (laughs) and in a month or so i'll be ready for fall yeah yeah it it will get start looking forward to that fall fall reading time Mm -hmm. Uh, but i am enjoying the summer reading time and i guess speaking of it uh, what have you been reading paul yeah absolutely so I touched on it in our last episode real briefly, and I'll touch on it real briefly here, but I did recently finish Javier Marias's book, uh, Berta Isla, mm-hmm. which I ended up really, really, really loving. It took me a little while to get into it for some reason. I don't think it was the book. I think it was just one of those, you know, life, life busyness kind of things. But um, yeah, by the time I got to the end of it, I was completely sold, really loved it. And I look forward to that episode where we get to talk about him. Um and then I did also just recently finish listening to a book by Peter Carey. It won the Booker back, oh, I don't even uh, know when, the true story of the Kelly Gang. Oh, uh-huh, like 2000-ish or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 2000, which I did enjoy. I've wanted to get to it for a long time. I won't say it's probably going to be one of my all-time favorites, but you know, it was entertaining and, and very well done. Um, so those are the two I've been reading. And then I just recently started one that I know you recently finished, which is The Feast by Margaret uh-huh. Kennedy. So, For some reason, I thought you'd already read that one. I thought you were ahead of me on that. No, nope, nope. I um, I got it recently from, you know, when McNally sent me that wonderful book mm-hmm. package. That was one of those in there. And as you discussed, it seems like such a good summer book. So, yeah, last night I read the prologue, which <laughs> is so intriguing, where uh-huh. it basically talks about how the landslide happened and wiped out this whole, whole hotel and everything. And then now I've started getting into the first couple letters and the first few chapters. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it so far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was a good experience. I think I may have mentioned, maybe I didn't mention it. Um, but I read that while on holiday, uh, by a, by a lake, no, not by mountains. Yeah, and that's good. We, we happened to be there. I started it on Saturday, which is when this book kind of goes back in time. And, um, and then it goes Saturday through Friday. And that's how long we were on our holiday at this place. So I would read that selection every day. That's cool. And it was, it was a good way to do it. (laughs) To get a little more nervous every day. Well, it was an interesting way to count down to the end of vacation, but at least it wasn't, you know, I hope to count down to the end of it all. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Packing the car doesn't seem quite as bad when you're not buried under rubble. So yeah, maybe it made things nice where I'm like, Hey, we survived. We survived everybody. (laughs) Let's go go home. home. Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. Well, and then the last thing I'm doing is just um, this coming week, Wednesday through Friday, I'm going to go on, I may have mentioned this before, Mm -hmm. my brother and a friend of ours have kind of an annual backpacking trip that we take up into the Rockies. And so, as we all know, when you're packing for a vacation, you have to kind of weigh the number of books you can bring, but it adds another wrinkle to it when you have to carry them on your back. Mm Mm-hmm. So, and also with your food, (laughs) yeah, it's like, hmm, do I really need to eat or should I bring another book? But in the past, I've, I've had a few books damaged just due to either, you know, being jammed into a backpack or, you know, inevitably when you're camping, there's always something, you know, fire, rain, water, whatever. (laughs) And so there's also that added pressure of, I don't want to take any of my really nice books. So kind of eyeing the mass paperbacks or like ones that I might end up, you know, trading in anyways or something like that. So it's been kind of fun, but I'm, I'm also doing that, which doesn't really count as reading, but reading planning, I I guess. I think that's cool. Yeah, Yeah. That's, that's excellent. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. How about you? What have you been reading? So um, a couple of the, both of these would probably to an extent uh, work with today's topic. 
Hmm. Um, but I maybe talk, I'll talk about that later on when we get to it. Uh, but I am uh, well into uh, the last Chronicle of Barset, which is book six, the final book of the Chronicles of Barsetshire uh, by Anthony Trollope. And this is, I, I am loving this one. Uh, maybe, maybe my favorite um, after the warden oh, because I thought you were going to say maybe it was going to upstage the warden. No, I don't think that will happen. Um, but it pulls back in so many of the characters. It's like a grand finale. Um, mm. And where a lot of his books start kind of slow and he knows it. he even talks about it. It's one of the reasons they start slow is that he's talking about how, you know, sometimes I have to start, start my book slow, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but this one starts right away um, with uh, with the hook, which is, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, I don't know, a de- somewhat depressive um, uh, uh, curate that we have gotten to know in uh, Framley Parsonage. His name is Josiah Crawley. He lives in the parish of Hogglestock. So, you know, uh, which I think is very fitting. I've been thinking uh, Thomas every time I open the book for, yeah. uh, you know, the encouragement over the years of just the general recommendation he would give on the readers for Trollope's writing mm-hmm. and uh, me now benefiting from it. And so, uh, but this, uh, this uh, man, Josiah Crawley has been accused of stealing 20 pounds and it starts right uh, with that. The, the name of the very first uh, chapter is how did he get it? <laughs> <laughs> and, Just, uh, I can never bring myself to believe it, John, said Mary Walker, the pretty daughter of Mr. George Walker, attorney of Silverbridge. Walker and Winthrop was the name of the firm, and they were respectable people who did all the solicitor's business that had been done in that part of Barsetshire on behalf of the Crown, were employed on the local business of the Duke of Omnium, who is great in those parts, and altogether held their heads up high as provincial lawyers do. They... The walkers lived in a great brick house in the middle of the town, gave dinners to which the country gentlemen not unfrequently condescended to come, and in a mild way led the fashion in Silverbridge. I can never bring myself to believe it, John, said Miss Walker. So it just starts a little bit more boom right in the middle of it. We we already know Josiah Crawley a little bit from uh, before yeah. and his troubles. You know, he's very poor. Um, he's got a big family. And this, of course, affects everybody in the neighborhood. You got um, uh, some of the folks from the the very last book are our friends, uh, Lily Dale, and and uh, that brings in John Eames, who you know is wooing Lily Dale. Um, you get little uh, snippets of the the Grantleys, you know, Archdeacon Grantley, his son, wants to marry uh, Doctor uh, or not Doctor wants to marry. Um, uh, Mr. Crawley's daughter, Grace. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, Archdeacon Grantley and his family from mm-hmm. the, the warden, uh, Dr. Thorne shows up. He's one of the, uh, fellows who sits on the, uh, the tribunal, uh, deciding whether or not to, uh, to send, uh, Mr. Crawley to trial for theft and just, uh, just a lot of, a lot of things coming together and just, I don't know. I love these books. I am immersed in them, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely I love immersed it. in them. I'm so happy. I'm so glad that it's worked out to be the experience that kind of you, we ideally would have hoped something like that would be. Yeah. And I'm not quite halfway. So this is the longest one of them all. That's what I was going to ask you. I thought that one was a little bit of a, 
chunkster compared to the other ones. Mm-hmm. Even the chunksters that I've been reading. Um, this one is uh, around 730 pages long, oh, and wow. I'm on page 316. Uh, but I've also been reading it faster than most of the last ones. I mean, I really, I really thought the small house in Allington was fantastic. But as I said before, I, I didn't love Framley Parsonage. It's the only one um, mm. of all of them that I didn't love, uh, but I've really, you know, kind of ex- exceptionally loved these last two. And I don't know I, when I'm done, I'll I'll report back and maybe I'll try and figure out uh, how I feel about each of them in some mm. way or another. But yeah, as far as a, a whole series, I've I have loved it, and I don't know if I told you this or not. I, I put it on my post on Instagram, but. Interestingly, in Small House in Allington, there's a side character named Plantagenet Palliser mm. who comes and becomes the starring uh, figure in a couple of chapters that don't have much to do with the rest of the plot, but he's the, uh, you know, the main, um, well, one of the main characters who takes the action in the Palliser uh, series of, of books, which is what I'm reading next, and where I thought I might take a break. I can't now. I've already gotten oh, to know him. So yeah, awesome. I didn't know that those two had, even if it's a somewhat loose connection. I didn't know that they had that connection. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a of a pull in in right there, and and I really enjoyed those chapters. Others I remember in my group were like, "What? This doesn't. You know, why are we having this? Doesn't have anything to do with it." And I'm just eating it up. Yeah, because I don't care anymore. He's just throw me stuff trollop and i will uh i will i will read it <laughs> yeah that's that's amazing i'm so glad and it sounds like those are going to be books that you know i don't want to put words in your mouth but you'll probably revisit throughout your lifetime you know it seems like so. those are going to be those all-time favorites yeah for sure i think so um the other uh book that i'm reading is one that comes out this week and it's one that i've mentioned before including on our very first episode of, of 2023 looking forward to you know 2023 releases and it's tessa hadley's new story collection after the funeral Mm. and other stories and i just again um we're talking about books you can become immersed in uh today and hers are short stories but there's something about her abilities and her tone and her i don't know I'll, i'll try and articulate it here in a moment but her prose is something I feel at home in, even mm-hmm. if her stories are quite um, different from my own experience. And, uh, you know, they're short. It's not, I don't get immersed in them quite the same way I can with Trollope. Those are immersive because I've been, you know, it's a whole new world and I'm living in it. With her, it's about the sense of um, of well-being, the sense of uh, uh, being taken care of. And I can fall into her stories very easily from the get-go. And here's how after the funeral, the first one begins. After the funeral, the two little girls, aged nine and seven, accompanied their grief-stricken mother home. Naturally, they were grief-stricken also, but then again, they hadn't known their father very well and hadn't enormously liked him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, there's just something about her abilities to pull you in from the get-go. There's a little uh, pulled uh, quote from Ron Charles on the the front flap and i think he puts it very nicely he says to read hadley's fiction is to grow self-conscious in the best way to recognize with astonishment the emotions playing behind our own expressions to hear articulated our own inchoate anxieties 
Mm. And that might be part of it is that I, you know, as I read hers, it's so new and fresh and insightful and yet familiar and uh, so well put. It's, it's like, wow, you've, you've really captured something that I just feel at home in, you know, in a way. So those are the, the two, the two books that I'll, I'll talk about today. Uh, But you know, very excited about them both. And again, after the funeral, out this week from uh, Knopf, and uh, one that I would strongly recommend. Yeah, I saw that that was coming out this week, and I I was pretty excited because I've only read two of her novels, but I've loved both of them. The mm-hmm. Past and Free Love were both wonderful. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that, and I could see her being really good at short stories. That seems like some authors that are really good at writing novels, you can't really picture it. But with her, it seems like she has, I don't know. I could just see it working very well. So have you never read one of her short stories? No. I would say she is a short story writer who also happens to write great novels. You're probably right. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. I came into her probably backwards and not knowing what I was doing, but only based on, I think it was probably Dorian. I know he's a big fan and I think he was praising her and so i think i just kind of blindly jumped into her novels but yeah <laughs> you're probably right um all right next bit of uh, preliminary uh, news we have a giveaway to announce today yeah. of the our a copy of natalia ginsburg's the dry heart and i'm very excited uh, because our next episode that we are recording in a couple of weeks is going to be all about the dry heart. And I'm sure we'll get into other topics, especially around Natalia Ginsburg uh, and some of her other books, but we're going to be joined by Kim McNeil and Merve Emery to discuss uh, the dry heart. And we wanted to give a copy away to uh, one listener. And uh, I appreciate all of the entries that we got. And I have already done the random number drawing, Paul. And here's where I have to, I have to step back just for one second. Okay. I am very worried that people think that I cheat or pick a favorite <laughs> or whatever, but I swear to people, I make a spreadsheet and I, you know, as they come in, I start putting them in that spreadsheet. And then I go to random.org and I type in the number of entries we got and say select a random number. And I feel like the only fair way to do it is to pick the first one. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. It was Anthony Garrett. (laughs) (laughs) Anthony, congratulations, you have won. But of course, this is where I'm like, well, maybe I should have cheated and not announced that Anthony won. I should have just stricken him. But that's not fair to him or to really anybody. If if I am trying to select, if I'm cheating in order to, to not give the impression that I'm cheating. Yeah, that's, well, that's cheating. That's right. That's right. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations, Anthony. I'm glad that $20 that you slipped Trevor when you were in Salt Lake paid off. No, I'm just kidding. We all know, Trevor, that you would never do that. And uh, yeah, no, that's really cool. And I have no doubt that Anthony will, uh, you know, appreciate it. And and he's he's a wonderful reader, a very smart reader. So it's going to a good home. Yeah, I I know that too, and I know all the all of the others would. I actually wish on this one we could have just given one to to you know everybody who I entered know. because there was genuine excitement and and just kind things said in the emails. Hmm. I I am very excited for Anthony, but again, I was just like, 
<laughs> when I clicked the, the the number and it was it was his again, there was that part of me, Anthony. I am so sorry, but there was that part of me that thought, well, I can't talk about going and visiting him. <laughs> and then talk about him winning the giveaway. That's Other people who have joined, you know, first first time entry, uh, long time listener. Thanks so much, guys. Oh, you give it to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to apparently go and be your friend um, in order That's to right. win. No, of course you don't. You could have been anywhere in the world. This happens that Anthony, you know, uh, uh, lives next door practically, you know, relatively mm-hmm. to many people. And, and um Anyway, I but yes, you're right. It's going to a good home, and I hope everybody gets a, uh, the ability to to read it um, eventually. Even if you're not uh, prepared for our next episode, yeah. that it comes together and that that uh, you know provides a lot of fun. Natalia Ginsburg is um, phenomenal, mm-hmm. and we are very fortunate to have a time where a lot of her books are available in English, including a brand new translation of her first uh, novella. Uh, the Road to the City, which came out just this past week, like on the 4th of July was its official release date. Mm. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in that episode, but the, it's a it's a fantastic translation. I did post on Instagram both my thoughts on on the, the, the story, but also I posted some slides of different, you know, the different translations mm-hmm. and comparing them to the original. And, you know, people can make their own judgments, of course, uh, but I think it fits so perfectly for the story that's being told. And, and it's, you know, again, that's now out in from new directions in that uh, wonderful, um, you know, storybooks uh, style. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's different. The Daunt books has the old Francis Frenet um, uh, translation. And then the, uh, the new one um, is from Jeannie Aldehev. And it's just, just awesome, you know. The, the translation of The Dry Heart is by Frances Frenet. Mm. So, you know, there's nothing against against her. I just think that uh, I think that she smoothed it a little bit too much for our for the purposes of the narrator. And it's mm. nice to have that more, um, you know, choppy, unselfconsciously direct and uh, stumbling uh, narrator that we get in in The Road to the City. Nice. So. Uh, yeah. There's another recommendation, I guess, for folks. Yeah, <laughs> We're looking for something to read today. You know, what What should I read? <laughs> well, here you go. <laughs> and the thing is, you could probably read both of those today because they're both very slim. I saw several mm-hmm. people who had picked up the dry heart and they said, I knew it was short, but I didn't realize it was quite this short. So if there's anybody who's on the fence about whether they'd like to read ahead of next uh, our next episode, I mean, mm-hmm. if any motivation it is, I think it's like 86 pages or something like that. So. Yeah, it's very short. Um, short enough. I'm, I'm sure you've read it a few times by now, right, Paul? That's yeah. right. Yeah, I'll read it ten or twelve times before next time. Now, <laughs> no, the way I'm looking at it, with our two guests, I don't think you and I are going to have to say anything. That's that's the the dream, right? Uh, exactly. To just sit back and and enjoy it's, their conversation. It really, know. you know, I won't be able to to hold back a little bit because oh no, I'm just going to be sure. so intrigued. But I will tell you, had it just been those two, I I be just delighted <laughs> i would too exactly no I, i'm excited to talk about it but i'm at least as excited or, or more excited about the guests themselves it's going to be wonderful so looking forward to that one for sure all right well let's let's take a take a breath for a moment sit back and get ready for our topic today on books you let's see how are we putting this can get immersed in does that sound does that sound good yeah that's what I, i'd say books you can get immersed in 
Awesome. All right. Well, we'll be back in just a moment with that topic. All right, Paul. Books you can get immersed in. This was your idea of a topic. And as I indicated on a few Marco Polos and uh, Slack messages, I, I wasn't 100% sure how I wanted to approach this because I did want my approach uh, to be distinct from, say, uh, some of the ancillary ideas of comfort reads, you know, books mm -hmm. you can just slip right into and, and feel that sense of warmth and comfort. Or the episode we did on some of our f favorite fictional places. A lot of those books mm -hmm. would apply to this because part of the reason those are so um, great with their places and their settings is because I felt like I was immersed in them. Yeah. And so I tried to be a little bit different in my approach to this while recognizing, you know, can't be, can't just, they're not separate. Um, but how can I kind of uh, twist it just a little bit for this? But how? what was your uh, thoughts on this? How did you come up with this? And what uh, yeah. what was your approach? I guess my thought was kind of, you know, a summary read. Like you hear a lot about beach books or, or those kinds of things or an airport novel. And I don't think that's necessarily where I wanted to go with it. But it's that idea of sometimes during the summer. Mm -hmm. For me, it's nice when you just pick up a book and kind of like what you were talking about. I mean, it could be Anthony Trollope, but like from page one, it just captures you. And all of a sudden you look up and you're kind of dazed and you realize it's been <laughs> a couple hours and it's like, wow, I didn't even know, you know, I was that into it. So I, I think it can be a lot of things. I, I didn't want to limit it to any one specific thing, but I mean, for many of us, it's writing style that can draw us in, but sometimes mm -hmm. it's a really strong story. Sometimes it's the characters themselves. I mean, you were talking about Tessa Hadley. I mean, she has all three of those, but with my experiences of her, often it's the characters themselves that are just so believable and so intriguing that helps me to kind of sink into her books. So I, I did, I kept it pretty broad, but to me, it was just that idea of those kinds of books where you just are completely all in. And like I said, it's kind of that idea of, of just, you know, you look up and you're just like, wow, you feel like uh -huh. you've been in another world for a couple of hours. So I, wanted to make it fairly broad because I think it can mean different things to different people. Yeah. But yeah, I tried to think of like the, the books that I'm talking about today, I may have mentioned them in passing in on, you know, previous episodes, but I, I, I think they're a little different than some of the stuff that I usually talk about in some ways. So yeah, I think it could be kind of fun, but what approach did you end up taking? So I think similar, I think we landed in a similar spot um, because at first I thought, well, is this, am I, am I thinking of that sense of comfort that I get when I'm in the hands of a great prose stylist for me, you know, the, the kind of prose that's so smooth and enticing that you're just along for the ride. It, it doesn't resist you. Um, the, you know, you become immersed because you, you just like the, the voice and mm -hmm. the, the, the writing itself. Um, and, and that's not to say that I, I mind craggy prose or sharp prose, the kind that, I don't know, if you were to rub your hand along it, you'd, where you might lose a finger kind yeah. of stuff, you know, that, that stuff can be immersive too. Um, but I thought, what about the ones where you, you sit down and it sits you down rather and just gets to work. But then I realized, no, there is more to a lot of these than just that. There's character, 
and there's just sometimes just great storytelling mm-hmm. that you want to keep on figuring out what's coming next. And yeah, so I finally came up with, okay, what are the books where it became real to me around me? The characters were real. The, their concerns were my concerns, their joys, my, you know, joys, uh, you know, their, their weather (laughs) felt Mm -hmm. like my weather. I'd get cold if it were cold in their, you know, their rooms or it felt like nighttime. Um, Even if I were reading outside on a bright summer day, you know, uh, it would feel like the nighttime uh, if I'm reading about some of these passages. So if you don't mind, I'll just give you my first one because I think it goes along with some of that. Sure. And and it's one that we've talked about plenty. So I felt like, well, this might, you know, be a good example um, of what I'm going for. And then I'll be a little bit, you know, like you, I tried to find ones that I hadn't really brought up before. Yeah. Um, but it's George Eliot's Middlemarch. Oh, yeah. I I still could put that on in almost any chapter. And, and uh, while well, it's been a while, so I might not remember everything going on, it it just was so delightful to me. And when I talk about their weather being my weather or the nighttime being their, you know, my own nighttime, those passages of like Casabon um, struggling in the night, mm-hmm. it didn't matter where I was. I was, I was there, you know, mm-hmm. the, the world around me disappeared and that's the world um, that I became part of um, that made me feel present in every way. I'm like, George Eliot has me, in her hands and is making me feel exactly what she wants me to feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, where I'm not, it's my own deficiencies, you know, but she's, uh, she's pulling me along. And I was just, I mean, that's one of the most immersive um, reading experiences I've ever had. And I'd like to have it again. And I'm sure, you know, if I did, I, I would, uh, I, I would be there because the, uh, again, I can pull out some of my favorite quotes from it still and go back and look at my notes and just be like, Oh, you know, mm-hmm. and then I go back into that time of my life too. You know, when I was reading it and it, it, that becomes almost a, a, <laughs> a present as yeah. well. It's kind of fun. Now it's interesting. You mentioned that cause that's something else I thought about with a lot of these books in particular is not only were the books themselves immersive, but they do, they bring you back so often to a particular time like sometimes it's when you're on vacation mm-hmm. or, or whatever the case may be, but that's definitely the case with several of the books that I mentioned too, which is really interesting. And something else you mentioned, great storytelling. I think that's a really important point with, with these. Um, several of the ones I brought up, I think that's what it is, is it's, they're a master storyteller. Yeah, yeah. Middlemarch is a great example. That's one that I, maybe by the end of this year or early next year, I might be revisiting because I it just keeps coming up and Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've read it, and it's just one of those that keeps calling out to me. Yeah, so I th- I thought that might introduce mine while while still giving my my first one. I I, I pulled five out, okay. um, specifically yep. to to talk about. So there's my my first one. Do you okay. do you is that how you want to approach it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll go with my first one. So storytelling, perfect segue. This book is Fourth of July Creek by Smith Henderson. Um, I do not know this book. Really? Oh, it's so good. I read it a few years ago and based pretty much solely on the rave reviews of Todd Goldberg, who is a novelist, and he's one of the co-hosts of Oh, I have heard of this book now that you... I remember now. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. Um, So it was written in 2011, or at least it came out in 2011, and it's set in rural Montana in the early 1980s. And basically, it follows this social worker named Pete Snow, 
and he works for the Department of Family Services. And basically his job is to, to basically monitor the abuse of, of children in this area, you know, in this real wild area known as 10 Mile, Montana. And like I said, it's set in the 80s. And, and this region is really, you know, economically depressed. There's a lot of poverty. And he's basically the only person working in this role in the community. So he sees it all. It's just him. So he's exposed to all kinds of, you know, rough things. So he's he's a little bit jaded, but then he comes across this boy named Benjamin Pearl on the elementary school playground. He's called in and the boy is, you know, clearly starving. He's covered, you know, in bruises. You know, he's just not doing well. And so, um, you know, he he does his job and he basically follows up and he ends up doing a, a site visit with the family. And it ends up that he has to go clear up into the mountains where the family lives. It's deep in the wilderness. And he meets the boy's father, Jeremiah. And basically this guy is, is a rough customer. He's like a, you know, one of those like survivalist kind of people who just lives up there and he runs a really tight, you know, bordering on abusive ship with his family and everything. Um, so anyways, it, it's this whole story of him trying to help this family, but he gets more and more immersed in this, this character, the boy's father. And, and the guy is written so well, even though initially he's very off-putting. Um, Henderson does such a great job of, of just drawing you into this world. And so, you know, I'll just read a little snippet of, of the prose just to give you an idea, but I think it's wonderful. It says, Pete drove West into 10 mile out of the absolute black behind him where there were no lights or residents in the Yawk wilderness, where only a black horizon rose up unevenly to the constellations that pulsed from their cupola over the lightly spangled valley bowl below 10 miles, scarce illumination, neon bar signage, a few porch lights, the four streetlights flashing yellow could not dim the stars in this plain and blank night country. It says he liked how Ten Mile smelled of burnt leaves for most of October. He liked the bench in front of the tobacco shop on the square, and how you could still send a child to buy you a pouch of drum from inside with no problem from the proprietor. He liked the bowling alley that was sometimes, according to a private schedule, kept only by them, absolutely packed with kids from the high school. And so, you know, it goes on and on for a while, but Basically, the part I like about that is is it's got a little bit of a Cormac McCarthy feel to it. You know, it's got that that nature writing, but he is able to kind of capture these people who are having a hard time. But then there's this guy who's trying to help and, and is having a hard time doing it. And the very end of that passage says there were people here with secrets, a thief, a homosexual, people who mistreated their children and whose houses stood out in Pete's mental map of the town like amber beacons because he knew their secrets he kept. So I don't know if that gives you a good snippet, but it's it's this perfect blend of there's just a wonderful setting. Well, not wonderful in all ways, but a perfectly drawn setting filled with all these intriguing and rough characters. And then there's this guy who's had a really hard time of it, but he's trying to do some good in the world. So it's got a little bit of that noirish, like, you know, the one guy setting out to try to save somebody against tough odds. But anyway, there's just something about this book. I have read it twice now. And it's just one of those where from the beginning to the end, I was just in completely in. And I thought it was nice. Yeah. It didn't get as much, you know, hype as maybe some of the other ones we've talked about. So I thought it would be worth mentioning really good stuff. All right. Yeah. Again, I I've have heard of that and maybe you've even brought it up a little bit before. I can't, I can't quite remember, but I probably at least in passing. Yeah. But it, it isn't one that I've, you know, clearly hasn't sunk in quite yet. 
Yeah. Could you build it up just a little bit more, you know, next time right. or something? <laughs> I'll read more passages. That's that's my go-to move. So, <laughs> All right. Well, I'll go with another one where I just felt, um, you know, it took me completely out of the, the world that I was in and set me down uh, in your neck of the woods, though mm. at a different time. And uh, this is John Williams' Butcher's Crossing. Mm. Uh this is another one of those where I just, I felt, I, I felt the, the same weather was going on around me. Um, they have parts where they wake up in the morning and go outside of their tent and their, you know, boots have been left out there and they're, you know, just like all of it, you know, you'll, you'll experience it probably this week, but it's hard to put your feet in those, those boots there. Everything's cold and, yep. and, you know, kind of stiffened up and, uh, just that that sense of of everything tangible that these characters are going through, I feel a little bit in my own life that fortunately not everything, mm-hmm. uh, because it's a pretty devastating uh, situation. Uh, but this is a book about a buffalo hunt that is just man, I don't know. I mean, it, it feels dirty and and grimy from the get go as this mm-hmm. character leaves. You know the the relative comforts of the East Coast and his, you know I think he's listening to a, a lecture by Thoreau who says go out and and get into nature and so he decides that's what he wants to do and it's a it's it's very rough <laughs> but he joins this buffalo hunt and it's just it's horrible it, it, it's it's horrible because in a, a part of it is you want you want them to succeed. And, you know, this is part of the economy and, and a lot of people are depending on it, but it's also, uh, you know, an absolute devastating annihilation of a species that they're attempting here. And so not only did I feel like I was present because of the physical aspects, but just the concern that I had, I remember just sitting there reading with stress and, and anxiety, even though I already know not because I knew how this particular book turned out, but I knew how the story, um, you know, in real history would play out. And I, I thought that it was a fantastic uh, book and you see this character's transformation. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's powerful, powerful storytelling and definitely one where uh, had me from beginning to end as well, as mm. you say. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great example. Yeah, that that book has stuck with me more than many others that I've read. And some of those passages in The Buffalo Hunt are, are some of the most mm-hmm. horrific things I've ever read. But like you said, you are just you can't help but keep reading it. It's amazing. He, he just well, pulls you along, even though you're afraid to read the next sentence. You can't help it. Well, here and then this kind of happens to them. And I feel like to us, too, you become not numb, but yeah you know, you've got to kind of put some of the horror behind in it. Here's a passage. It says, The stench of the buffalo, the feel of the warm meat on his hands and the sight of of clotted blood, came to have less and less impact upon his senses. Shortly he came to the task of skinning almost like an automaton, hardly aware of what he did as he sucked the hide from an inert beast and pegged it to the ground. He was able to ride through a mass of skinned buffalo covered black with feeding insects, and hardly be aware of the stench that rose in the heat from the rotting flesh. You know, it's yeah. just, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, he makes it so I feel very, very aware of the, <laughs> the flies and the rotting flesh and, yeah. and of his need to be somewhat d- disassociated from it. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a wonderful, 
Wonderful choice and very immersive. Well, my my next one is a very well-known book, but it's one that I think fits this category perfectly, and it's The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. Um, this book received a ton of hype and also, I would say, a ton of backlash You know, when it came out in 2013 and then won the Pulitzer in 2014. But man, I really enjoyed it. I couldn't put it down. And this is one of those where we talked about how you can remember exactly where you were when you were reading big chunks of it. I mean, I read it in these big, huge gulps, something like 800 pages long, but uh-huh. you find yourself reading like, you know, 200 pages in a, in a sitting sometimes. And I specifically remember taking my older son to baseball practice and then sneaking back to the car so I could read more, you know, and it's just <laughs> one of those books where I can remember it like viscerally exactly where I was and how it felt. Um, it centers around a young teenage boy named Theodore Decker, and it kind of follows his life after he survives this terrorist attack at the Met Museum of Art in New York that kills his mother. And that all happens right away, so it's not a spoiler or anything. And the terrorist attack involves an explosion. And so right after that happens, you know, he's disoriented. There's dust and smoke and everything in the air, and he's kind of stumbling through the rubble. And he comes across this older man who's dying, and the dying man gives him a ring and a message. and Theodore is kind of disoriented, but he thinks he's pointing at this small painting called the Goldfinch. It's by a Dutch master. And so Theodore, in his kind of disoriented state, ends up just taking that painting. It's it's real small. And that's basically how the entire book kicks off. And from there, it covers all kinds of ground, both geographically and, and time-wise. It, it skips, you know, ahead. But, you know, there's settings in Park Avenue apartments, really ritzy Park Avenue apartments in New York. There's these really haunting passages that take place in Las Vegas where he's kind of in these suburbs that are deserted and kind of run, not run down, but just deserted. I mean, there's nobody living there and him and his friend are kind of just, you know, getting up to no good in there. And I don't know. It's just one of those where I I remember so many passages from this book so clearly. Um, It's kind of got that buildings Roman feel to it and some elements of Charles Dickens. I know that Donna Tart is a big Charles Dickens fan. And so it does have some of that feeling of like a David Copperfield where you're following him throughout his life and seeing him, you know, apprenticed at different tasks and things like that. But it's also got all kinds of other, you know, darker stuff in it, you know, drug usage and theft and crime and all these different things. But one of my favorite things about it is the time that she spends focusing on art, both the objects themselves, but also the impacts that they have on us as humans. And so I'll just read a real quick passage touching on that part of it. It says, whatever teaches us to talk to ourselves is important. Whatever teaches us to sing ourselves out of despair. But the painting has also taught me that we can speak to each other across time. And I feel I have something very serious and urgent to say to you, my non-existent reader. And I feel I should say it as urgently as if I were standing in the room with you. That life, whatever else it is, is short. That fate is cruel, but maybe not random. That nature, meaning death, always wins, but that doesn't mean we have to bow and grovel to it. That maybe, even if we're not always so glad to be here, it's our task to immerse ourselves anyway, wade straight through it, right through the cesspool, while keeping eyes and hearts open. And in the midst of our dying, as we rise from the organic and sink back ignominiously into the organic, it is a glory and a privilege to love what death doesn't touch. For if disaster and oblivion have followed this painting down through time, so too has love. Insofar as it is immortal, and it is, I have a small, bright, immutable part of in that immortality. It exists, and it keeps on existing. And I add my own love to the history of people who have loved beautiful things, and looked out for them, and pulled them from the fire, 
and sought them when they were lost, and tried to preserve them and save them, while passing them along literally from hand to hand, singing out brilliantly from the wreck of time to the next generation of lovers and the next. And I just think, whoa, man, I mean, she's so good at like the storytelling. She's a wonderful storyteller, but then passages like that, I mean, she's a beautiful writer. And that just reminds me of a lot of what I think we all do in like NYRB or, or all these different publishers of that idea of preserving art and passing it literally hand to hand and making sure that people remember it. So anyway, I, I love that book. And um, I will say it's odd. I've not yet read any of her other books, which is kind of <laughs> weird based on how much I love that one. But anyway, I know that some of her other books are also, you know, hyped and, and well-regarded by many people. So, yeah, I actually, I mean, I, it's been a while, but that's one that I read the first three or 400 pages of and then gave up on, oh, even though I was reading it, you know, like easily, like I, mm-hmm. I, I it was, she is a very good storyteller, but it was about that time that I thought, <clears throat> she's a great storyteller. And I find myself, you know, easily going through 20, 30, 40 pages mm-hmm. in, in a sitting, but I didn't feel as like, this is one of the easiest stories to read that I, I'm not enjoying for some yeah. reason, Yeah, you know? So I, I do, I do think I want to give it another try someday because I've heard, you know, that was right when it came out and I just wasn't invested or who knows what else was going on, but oh, it, there was it so much grab me we talked about those books where the hype can sometimes impact how you view them. And that was certainly Mm -hmm. at that time, one where there was no getting away from (laughs) all -hmm. the discussions and the counter discussions and everything else going on. So yeah, I don't know. Um, I know my wife has tried a couple of her other books and had a similar experience to what you just described where she couldn't Mm -hmm. quite get into it. So yeah, I don't know. It might be worth giving it a try. (laughs) And, but for, for whatever reason, it, it caught me at just the right moment. Well, let me go on to one that I don't I don't know if we've talked about too much. I, we probably have, you know, as these things happen. And we're, yeah. you know, over 50 episodes in here. But it's certainly not one that I think has come up a lot, uh, though it probably should. And that is um, Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. Mm. Is this one you've read, Paul? I don't actually even know the answer to that. I have not read this one yet. I've read several okay. of hers, but not that one. Oh, man. I, I remember this is the first book by her that I ever read. And for whatever reason, you know, sometimes we go into these books, even though we've had great experiences with classics, mm-hmm. I always assume, well, this is one that's probably going to be a little bit tough, you know, stuffy prose. Uh, Tessa Hadley, when she first uh, started reading Anita Bruckner, was worried that, you know, thought, oh, these are going to be lavender scented novels. Right. <laughs> and finding something quite different. And I, you know, I'm sure that's what I thought with, the Age of Innocence and Edith Wharton. But, oh my gosh, uh, this is such a great book for its emotional impact. But the writing, this is one where I could just, you know, ah, just enjoying it so much. Mm. And so here, here's a part that just shows how much fun she's having. Her voice as an author, her f- fluid sentences that just make you go wild. I could not have come up with this way of putting this. Mm. And um, she's introducing us to uh, the matriarch of this little community. People go to her almost to pay obeisance. You know, she's kind of the one in, in charge. And her name is Mrs. Manson Mingott. The immense accretion of flesh, which had descended on her in middle life, 
like a lo- like a flood of lava on a doomed city, had changed her from a plump, active little woman with a neatly turned foot and ankle into something as vast and august as a natural phenomenon. She had accepted this submergence as philosophically as all her other trials, and now, in extreme old age, was rewarded by presenting to her mirror an almost unwrinkled expanse of firm pink and white flesh, in the center of which the traces of a small face survived as if awaiting excavation. A flight of smooth double chins led down to the dizzy depths of of a still snowy bosom veiled in snowy muslins that were held in place by a miniature portrait of the late Mr. Mingott, and around and below, wave after wave of black silk surged away over the edges of a capacious armchair with with two tiny white hands poised like gulls on the surface of the billows. (laughs) Oh, wow. That is not stuffy prose. No. (laughs) For sure. Uh, but it's so fun, um, and she's this good and this adept at conveying so much of this. You know, this is the story of of uh, Newland Archer, um, and his he is engaged um, to the the young, um, very very wonderful uh, May Welland, um, but he, you know, feeling um, that. I don't know, he has something else that he deserves in, in life, you know, given his station and his, you know, where he is as a man. Um, also wants to uh, uh, pursue a relationship with the Countess Olenska, which is May's older but not old uh, cousin uh, who married a count and, and has lived abroad for years. She comes back into town and, you know, he he he's trying to, to kind of figure all this out. Um and it's just this really interesting portrait of this 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 society and how you know people know what's going on i think even may herself and she is not stupid or naive as she kind of um plays the role of but anyway just brilliant i, I feel novel full of emotion and um real sentiment and you know you you uh, just uh, another one of those where i was surprised at how easy it was to sit down with a relatively thick novel that I thought might be stuffy and find myself mm-hmm. just completely gulped up by it and, and loving it every page. That's awesome. So. I'm so glad you're representing the classics today. Cause I, I went a different direction and <laughs> I think it's important to like, there's so many ways to become immersed in a book that I think it's cool that we're covering some different topics. You know, they're not all mm-hmm. the, the traditional page turners. Well, my next two are not. They are okay. they are a bit more the maybe I don't know if they're traditional page turners, but they are more contemporary. Nice. So, but cool. let, let's hear your next one. See if it's yeah. something that I've heard of before. I think you have because I think I've mentioned it maybe when I was reading it even on our podcast, and it's the forgery by Ava Barrera. Mm-hmm. It's from Tarko Press, translated by Robin Myers and Ellen Jones. Um, it's of all the books that I'm talking about today, this is the one I've read most recently. And I think, like I said, I have talked about it at least briefly on on here, but it's just a ton of fun, a nice literary mystery and a, definitely a page turner. And like The Goldfinch, it's another book that centers largely around art, which is kind of fun. Um, the main character of this one is a struggling artist who also ends up working as an art forger. Um, and this one is set in Guadalajara. It's either in the 80s or the 90s. I can't remember. So, you know, relatively contemporary. And it has one of those openings that I just challenge anyone to read this and not keep going. So I'll just read the beginning here. It says, my name is Jose Federico Burgos. I'm a painter. 
I make copies of Renaissance paintings and the occasional forgery. I'm sitting on the edge of the highest wall on the property. I'm going to jump. I'm going to do it at any second now. The dawn cold numbs my legs as they dangle over the abyss. The street lamps are starting to turn off as the sunlight peeps over my shoulder. Sunbeams cut through the haze lying over the hamlet. I hear a cockerel's cry, but it must be miles away. This yellow morning light might be the last thing I see. And so that's that's how it starts mm. off. And it goes on a little bit longer with that part where you're just like, what is happening here? And then it cuts back in time and you start to see why he was on this wall getting ready to, to jump off. And basically, without giving too much away, um, he has agreed due to, you know, kind of desperate circumstances to forge this 15th century painting for this really wealthy and eccentric person who lives on this kind of compound. And as we go along, more of this mystery kind of comes out and there's some really interesting and sketchy things that are happening there. And we don't really know exactly what's happening. And so, um, yeah, it's just a a really fun book. I I can't remember. Have you read this one? No, I haven't. I haven't read that one. No, it's really, it's good. I was lucky enough. I think it was last year to sit in on a zoom talk that had the author and the two translators all together and they were talking a lot about it and and the impacts of the art on all of it but also just the translation process because it was co-translated by those two wonderful and talented ladies so yeah as always with charco they, they just do such a good job of exposing us to all of these really you know often more contemporary authors which i appreciate mm-hmm. and just all these exciting and, and new voices so if anybody hasn't read that one, I would I would highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. I will get to that one for sure. It's one that I've had on my need to pick this one up yeah. uh, as I continue to expand my my charcoal collection. And uh, yeah, I agree with you there. And their books are quite uh, they're often um, surprisingly, uh, you know, the voice in them is so strong. I know, and and uh, can can be rather they're taking on themes that I think are really serious and, and uh, filled with uh, some real grit and such, but no, you're right. And the several other books that I considered adding to this episode were from them for that very reason. I think that voice, like you said, they're so good at that. And that's one of the things that can really pull you along in a book for sure. (laughs) All right. Well, my next one is one I believe you've read and it is annihilation by Jeff Mm -hmm. Vandermeer. Yes, uh, just a great science fictiony, uh, you know, ecological horror uh, novel that begins with a hook that I I took this one with me on on holiday and it just you know I gulped it down. Um, but it talks about the tower, which was not supposed to be there, plunges into the earth in a place just before the black pine forest begins to give way to swamp, and then the reeds and wind gnarled trees of the marsh flats. I I don't know how a tower plunges into the earth, you know, uh, you know it's, it's, it, this whole thing just captivated me from the beginning to the end because it reminded me of so many of my other favorite stories, you know, the invention of Morel, for example, here I am trying to learn the landscape of this, of this place and its weird mysteries. Um, uh, we're thinking of uh, movies like uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's uh, Stalker. And um, and then an old favorite computer game, Mist. You know where you just here are these weird buildings. There's a lighthouse in in the the book, mm-hmm. and you know there's some sciency things going on. They're in some kind of zone. What what is going on? But it's written so well that 
not only was I captivated by the mysteries, but I was captivated by what was right in front of us um, as well. You know, the, the things that had already been sitting there, this tower and the, the lighthouse and the marsh flats and the characters trying to figure out what, what happened um, to the point where I loved this one so much that uh, while I think they're still good, I was disappointed in this mm-hmm. in the follow-up uh, books uh, to this series. Probably need to read them again uh, because at the time I'm like, Oh, this isn't, this isn't the same as Annihilation. I don't want yeah. this. <laughs> right. No, I had a similar experience. Yeah. It's so funny. I, a coworker and I were literally just talking about that book yesterday. And <laughs> every time I talk about it, when you read that passage, I get the chills like that book creeped me out in ways that <laughs> I don't usually get creeped out by books that much, but the, ugh, just the way he describes things, the setting, mm-hmm. oh man, yeah, those books really have haunted me. And it's funny, you said you read it on a vacation. I did too. And <laughs> several of these books that I'm mentioning today are books I read on vacation. And I wonder if it's the chicken or the egg thing, where if I picked some of these books for vacation predicting or knowing that they might be those kind of books, or if it's more a matter of sometimes when you're on vacation, you have that uninterrupted time where you can truly sink into a book. Mm. Like, I don't know which one it is, but it's funny that you mentioned that because that one and a couple of these other ones that I'm talking about today were all ones that I read during a summer vacation up at a cabin or something like that. I feel like this might be the only one of mine that's that way. Mm. Um, though I can think of other vacations where I've taken, uh, you know, a, a good mystery or, yeah, uh, you know, even uh, what's the name of that Ready Player One? Mm-hmm. Um, I took that to 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 do a vacation, and I loved it. I was having so much oh, yeah. fun with it. Um, and then, I, but it was one where I was like, okay, now I I don't need to think about it too much more after it was over. These right. have all stuck with me. Yeah. Um, beyond beyond just being something that I you know had an easy and fun time reading, um, so I I agree with you, and I think that's interesting to, to think about. But mm-hmm. I think these books might have had the power to captivate and, and suck you in, even if it was something you were stealing time away, you know, yeah. in in a busy day to read. No, I agree. Yeah, you'd like you'd have the... maybe been more resentful of the rest of your, you know, the obligations <laughs> in the day reading these these books. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. Because like I said, the Goldfinch, for example, it was literally sneaking away from my son's baseball practice to go read it in the car. So <laughs> That's right. the right books can have that impact no matter what. Well, this next one I'm reading is is another one that I did take on vacation. And I remember it very clearly. It's The Passion by Jeanette Winterson. Um, I remember taking this book up to the mountains on a vacation when we were staying in a cabin when the boys were really quite young. I think Josh was a baby and Daniel was a toddler. So it was a long time ago, but I just remember being completely immersed in this book for hours at a time. Um, I feel like Jeanette Winterson is one of those authors who doesn't ever get as much attention as she deserves. I know that there have been periods where you hear a lot about her, but I just think she has been consistently good for so long. and, And I don't feel like she's mentioned maybe as much as she deserves such a wonderful writer, but also such a fascinating mind. Um, You know, she's probably most famous for her semi-autobiographical novel, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. But I've read, you know, enjoyed a number of her books over the years, including one I mentioned, I think it was on one of our Christmas episodes that I can't remember the name of it, but it was this really odd collection of winter and Christmas stories that I mentioned in an episode. And it was just an insight into her mind. She's just such an interesting person. But this book, The Passion, is definitely, I think, the favorite one of hers that I've read so far. It's set during the Napoleonic Wars, and it basically follows two main characters, 
Henri, I assume is how you'd probably say it, who's a young Frenchman. Um, and his job at the beginning is basically to to keep the emperor, Napoleon, in chicken. He, he wrings their necks and, and makes sure, I guess, the emperor likes to eat, you know, at least two or three meals a day. He likes to have chicken. So um, Henri's job is to kind of follow along in the army and, and, you know, work in the kitchen. And then the other main character is Villanelle. And she is a... I'm reading this quote from the way she's described a cross-dressing daughter of a boatsman and she lives in Venice. Um, and it's really interesting. She's web footed. She can walk on water and she kind of sneaks her way around Venice. She knows all the back alleys and all the, you know, the people like that. And she works in a casino and she dresses as a boy, which enables her to meet a variety of characters. So eventually later on in the book, the two characters meet and that ends up making a big part of the book. But, um, you know, it's been a while since I've read this one, but I just remember her writing and, and the odd magical kind of fairy tale quality that it has. So I'll just read a really quick excerpt here just to give you a little taste of that. It says, rumor has it that the inhabitants of this city walk on water, that more bizarre still, their feet are webbed, not all feet, but the feet of the boatman whose trade is hereditary. This is the legend. When a, boatman's, when a boatman's wife finds herself pregnant, she waits until the moon is full and the night empty of idlers. Then she takes her husband's boat and rows to a terrible island where the dead are buried. She leaves her boat with rosemary in the bows so that the lim, limbless ones cannot return with her and hurries to the grave of the most recently dead in her family. She has brought her offerings, a flask of wine, a lock of hair from her husband, and a silver coin. She must leave the offerings on the grave and beg for a clean heart if her child be a girl, and the boatman's feet, if her child be a boy, there's no time to lose. She must be home before dawn, and the boat must be left for a day and a night covered in salt. In this way, the boatmen keep their secrets and their trade. No newcomer can compete, and no boatman will take off his boots, no matter how you bribe him. I've seen tourists throw diamonds to the fish, but I've never seen a boatman take off his boots. So, just, you know, a fun book, but with her writing style, it's not just a fun book. There's a lot going on there. The The title, The Passion, plays into it in various ways. But like I said, it's been a long time since I've read it. I'd like to, to revisit it soon. But for anybody who hasn't ever read Jeanette Winterson, I would highly recommend giving her a try. I have a few of her books, but I am, am in that boat. Uh, no, so many of our friends over the years have yeah. you know, been big fans. and yet John uh, Self, especially, I think. Yep. Yep. And I, I know that I would, would enjoy him. That's why I've picked up a few over the years, but I guess I'm always like, Oh, and I'll now get to this one soon. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you have that one, I would say it was be a great place to start. I'm not, sh- I think I'm it- not sure if that's one that I do have, but it, mm. it, it might, it sounds like one that I would uh, like that. The, the, I love those kinds of, they seem mundane in a way, but they're mm-hmm. so weird and unique as a perspective of what someone's life must have been. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And with her, it always has that weird magical element, like kind of in that passage mm-hmm. I described where there's something something more going on. It's not just a historical fiction. There's There's a little bit of a fairy tale element to it, which is fun. All right. Well, my last one and one that I even sitting here, I'm like, oh, I want to go read this again. Uh, is Michael Frayn's novel Headlong. <laughs> oh, I don't know that one at all. Oh my gosh. I love this book. So I I, I, did, I did know Michael Frayn as, you know, a, a playwright. Uh, before I knew he wrote any of these novels, I'd seen, you know, Copenhagen and um, 
knew of him that way. And I remember when I was in uh, England in 2004, I think at the National Gallery, there's this book there, Headlong, by Michael Frayn. And I think like right before that, we'd uh, gone to see his latest play, uh, Democracies, and you know, one of the theaters there. And so I'm like, wow, does he write novels too? Well, yes. And, you know, I've read uh, a few of his other ones, but this one remains just an all-time favorite. And it has some of my affinities. There's art. There's um, almost a heisty sense to it. Mm. Um, It has uh, Bruegel, uh, the painter. Mm. Um, I would, you know, I love his his paintings. You know, I brought up Tarkovsky a few minutes ago in relation to Annihilation. Tarkovsky uh, sometimes has, uh, you know, Bruegel paintings in the background or in Solaris in particular. There's like this little Mm. study of of, uh, one of the paintings that is brought up in this very book, Headlong. Um, and this is about a man named Martin Clay, who is decided to take a sabbatical in order to work on a book on, uh, nominalism in 15th century Netherlands paintings, you know, all this kind of stuff. He's, mm. you know, little sound, I'm sure it would be fascinating, but not as this guy would write it. I didn't like him at all. Um, but this is how the, uh, the, the book begins. I have a discovery to report. Many of the world's greatest treasures are known to have been lost over the centuries. I believe I may have found one of them. What follows is the evidence for my claim. I'm in a difficult position, though. If my claim is not accepted by scholars, I shall look a fool. If it is, then I shall be in a worse position. The circumstances of the discovery are such that I shall emerge not only as a fool but as an object of outrage and horror. <laughs> wow. And uh, it's it, what, what happens, and he goes into this right away. It's not a spoiler, but he finds a, a, a lost uh, Bruegel painting that is, you know, believed to potentially, maybe potentially exist. Mm-hmm. You know, one of his uh, missing season paintings. But the thing that I, that I love about this book is it's like, it's a little bit darker, than, you know, than... Uh, the other season paintings. Uh, and so this book goes into the history of what, what were the conditions Bruegel was painting in, in uh, at the time, you know, what we've seen some of his dark paintings. Why are these so light? You know, what, what's going on here? And so there's this really great um, just exploration of, of art and of this period of history conditions of creating art. Um, but I really love when he finds the painting He says, I recognize it instantly. I say, I recognize it. I've never seen it before. I've never seen even a description of it. No description of it, so far as I know, has ever been given. Or has ever been given. No one knows for sure who, if anyone apart from the artist himself, has ever seen it. But he recognizes it, you know, and I think that that's so cool and such a great uh, uh, way to do it. I'm like, yeah, after reading this book, I feel like I could... You know, uh, there there's some things that I feel like I I am so enraptured by certain types of art that I might recognize a a little hidden one um, mm-hmm. if it popped up too. But yeah, this was this is a great page turner um, art uh, book. Nice. <laughs> so, no, I've like I said, I've not heard of that one, so that's exciting. I'll have to go check that one out. And what is that? The third or fourth one out of this that has a high a heavy art focus, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it goes back to our affinities episode. Some of the That's reasons true. that we get so immersed in these is because they speak our language. <laughs> That's right. Good point. Well, my last one is... Lonesome another... Dove. 
Yeah. No? no. Although, no, no. <laughs> I, I don't know. If, I, I won't necessarily say. I did think about Lonesome Dove, actually. I'm like, God, that would just be so funny. People would just Sorry. turn off the episode. I, I, I had to do it. Um, I had to do it. You know, I just, it's been a while since you brought up Lonesome Dove. And there are a lot of people playing bingo still, I'm sure, who oh, yeah. are upset that they've they been can't bored. Win. Yeah. 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 And and just so people know, it's not just when I'm recording because that same conversation when we were talking about Jeff Vandermeer with my friend at work, I actually was like really pushing for him to read Lonesome Dove too. So I, I'm always on. I'm always on. Um, yeah. No, the, the book is Winter's Bone by Daniel Woodrell. I don't know I've if I've talked about him. Yeah. The movie. And I love Daniel Woodrell, but I've not uh, read that one. He's so good. He's an author I really love. And I couldn't remember, again, I probably have mentioned him at some point, but I don't think he gets enough attention either. Um, For those who don't know, most of his books are set in the Ozarks, I think usually in Missouri. And he actually coined a phrase at one point, country noir, uh, to describe his books. And I I think that's a perfect description of what a lot of his books are, um, including this one. Um, You know, they're usually focused on people who are in pretty tough situations obviously probably economically but also there's there's drug usage and different things people who are living in parts of the country that are are maybe forgotten or overlooked a little bit um and like i said i've read quite a few of his books the ones that stand out to me tomato red is really good and then this one and then he also has some wonderful short story collections that i'd recommend too but obviously this is his most well-known book and like you said largely due to the fact of the, the movie which i think is really good really well done starring Jennifer Lawrence. Um, And the main character is named Re, and she is a teenage girl growing up in this rural part of the Ozarks. And she's in just, like I said, a tough situation. Her mother is really struggling with mental illness and other things that are going on. Um, And so Re is kind of thrust into this role of, of caretaker for her younger siblings. So she has to make sure they're eating and she's teaching them all these skills about how to survive and and, you know, make way in this really tough environment. Um, and there's a passage that I think just perfectly captures like her character and also the sets the stage for this. And she's talking about her responsibility to those younger siblings. And it says, Ree's grand hope was that these boys would not be dead to wonder by age 12, dulled to life, empty of kindness, boiling with mean. So many dolly kids were that way, ruined before they had chin hair groomed to live outside square law and abide by the remorseless, blood-soaked commandments that govern lives led outside square law. And so I I just really like, like, she she wants them to stay innocent as much as they can, but also just not to grow up to fall down some of the paths of the people around her, who she sees, you know, who are struggling and everything. But so her as a character, she's she's a wonderful main character and, and you feel you know, immersed with her right away. But this setting, even though it's so rough, you know, it's in these really rough hills where there's, you know, trailers and there's a lot of meth and all kinds of stuff going on. And basically the idea is her and her family are about to be evicted from their home. And so she has to try to track down her father, who's kind of a deadbeat guy who, you know, he's out there manufacturing meth and he's been arrested and all these other things. And her job is to try to track him down to prevent them from getting evicted. And so she set out on this mission to, to, to do that. And so it does have this noir feel where she's kind of investigating this mystery of where he's gone, but there's a whole lot more to it. There's a really immersive setting. There's all kinds of, you know, danger and everything mm-hmm. else. Going on. And, and it's all fueled by this idea of her trying to take care of her family. Whew. 
I just think it's it's a wonderful book. And and like I said, Daniel Woodrow, I'm glad to hear that you, I couldn't remember if you read his stuff, but I think he's just an amazing writer um, who really captures that part of the country so well and in a very sympathetic and empathetic way, but also without pulling any punches or, or trying to make it, you know, not, he doesn't gloss over the tough stuff, but he also makes you understand what's going on in that area too. So yeah, yeah I love this book. He hasn't published anything in 10 years, Paul. Really? Was it the maid's version? The maid's version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember when that came out. That's interesting. I wonder why. I don't know. Um, it does say, so that was 2013. It says the university of Missouri, Kansas city awarded him an honorary doctorate in December of 2016. Maybe he was like, okay, now I'm done. Yeah, exactly. Doctor would ride off now. into the sunset. <laughs> but yeah, that, I was a bit surprised. He's 70 now, but mm-hmm. it means he's kind of either, you know, well stopped publishing if, if not stopped writing, uh, yeah. you know, in his, uh, late fifties, um, or, you know, when he was, yeah, uh, you know, uh, turning 60. So I wonder if he's got some more things, uh, coming ever, or if, if, if his, uh, work is out there. Yeah, I sure yeah. hope so. I, like I said, I love his stuff. The, the one thing I will say is despite how much I love him, he, um, he has quite a few books that I have not yet read. So either way I have a fair mm-hmm. number to go back and revisit, but the ones that I have read, like I said, in particular, Winter's Bone is wonderful. But that book, Tomato Red, that I read of his is also wonderful. Um, and then there was the Outlaw album is another one that I would recommend if people are just kind of skimming down the list and looking for ones to read. But that leaves a lot lot out there that I haven't read. So that's always a good feeling. Well, um, why don't we end this episode uh, by asking our readers to let us know what kind of books they get immersed in, you know, give mm-hmm. us some ideas as we get ready for late summer reading and or even fall reading, winter reading. I mean, who cares? We want, all want books that we do fall into. Mm-hmm. Um, but also with a, with a petition for Bill Martini to update the bingo card. Yes. Because one of these is no longer applicable. It is a book I did not get immersed in, but I have finished the books of Jacob yes. <laughs> by Olga Tokarczyk and as uh, it's translated by Jennifer Croft. Oh man, Paul, I finished it. And uh, one of the bingo uh, squares as Trevor mentions that he is still reading the books of Jacob. Well, that, I can't do that anymore. That's no. so we need a new one. Bill. We need to update it. We need an update. We did bring up brand or, uh, you know, John self today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I, you know, I, I yelled dove. out lonesome dove mm-hmm. uh, partially just to give people a, a, a little bit of a benefit there. Um, there are quite a few here that we didn't though. So sorry to disappoint, um, anyone yeah. playing along, but yeah, we do need a new one. Um, if, if you're available, Bill, uh, right. to, uh, to make sure that, that square gets taken off. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm done with it. I, I read the whole, the whole thing and did it, you know, did enjoy it and also didn't enjoy it. It's a weird thing. I haven't quite figured out how to articulate my feelings, um, about it. It's, it's a book that, uh, you know, brings you into characters and then sets you spinning away and brings things back together and then pushes them out again and, and away and then bring back. But I thought the last 200, 250 pages were um, pretty spectacular. And I was always intrigued by what was going on. I just had the hardest time immersing myself in it. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the right word. I, you know, I would read a, a couple pages and, and think, oh, that was, that was interesting. Uh, what else should I do now? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it sounds like at least at the very least 
you are glad that you have read it. Like it was a rewarding experience and, and you don't regret yeah. having read it. I don't regret having read it. It, it, it didn't, it, you know, it didn't disrupt my, my life or my reading life in, you know, any significant way. I don't think I had another 900 page book. I was going to read in the same, you know, year and a half it took me to read right. this one. I've, I've read other big books since then. So it didn't necessarily delay things other than, um, I was starting David Copperfield. You know, my goal was to start David Copperfield at about the same time I started the books of yeah, Jacob. I and I said, I'll read that when I'm done with the books of Jacob. Uh-huh. So that has not happened yet because that was always, you know, not not really my real intention, but just this thought of, oh, I need to finish that and then I'll start uh, David Copperfield. You know, I can't read multiple books, but with titular characters, um, apparently. So that's right. Well, <laughs> I, I did hope... read Doctor Thorne, and I've read plenty of other <laughs> ones. But uh... <laughs> well, I hope that this, whenever you decide to to move on to David Copperfield, I think that'll be a nice palate cleanser. Because um, I feel it's very, very immersive. I think that would be a perfect one to to follow up on this episode with. Because to me, that's one that I sink into every time I go back to it. Just very easily and quickly. Well, I, I am excited to get to it. Again, I've got the last Chronicle of Barset. I'll probably finish it this week. I, you know, for sure I will. I, I, you know, unless something else comes up because I just, I, I am very immersed in it. Yeah. So, very cool. Once it's over, I may take a break, uh, a, a little break from Trollope to, to get back to Dickens, but we'll see. We'll see if I can do it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a wonderful pairing with however you decide to do it. But, all right, folks, we're uh, glad you stuck with us today. Hopefully, um, you know, this got you some thoughts broiling as to what, what books you've been immersed in and recommend in similar situations. Um, and we'll be back with, a, I think, a pretty immersive read, a short mm-hmm. one, a short, well, it, can you be immersed in something that also just punches you in the face? <laughs> we'll you know? find out. I think so. <laughs> Doesn't that mean that you can't get immersed? If the if the water you jump into... Um, you know, I don't know, erupts underneath you. Can is that immersive? I don't know, but uh, we'll we'll figure that out in the next episode when we talk yeah. about the dry heart. So, <laughs> looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, thanks, Paul. We'll talk to you later. Yep. See you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.